Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. We don't rock. rock. We talk. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Welcome to TNT. My name is Major David McBride. I'm a military whistleblower, uh, amongst other things. And I am a regular TNT, but I'm filling in for Dean Macklin. So uh, welcome to all the uh, regular viewers. And uh, I hope we have a good show today. It's going to be a little bit uh, a little bit bumpy, <laughs> a little bit amateurish. So I hope you could uh, all uh, maybe uh, bear with me while I get uh, we get these things right, Mike. Ryan and I have been trying to uh, do a bit of interior decorating. I hope you like uh, the background. And uh, he says I'm going to fail as an interior decorator. But um, and I hope that we won't fail as a radio presenter. What I'm going to talk about today is uh, a subject uh, dear to my heart, and, and I think it should be dear to everybody's heart. The subject of AUKUS. Um, this is that's the uh, the treaty between or not treaty much more than a treaty but a, a sort of uh, maybe it's a suicide pact I don't know something the Americans uh, have got us uh, to be part of where we were increasingly uh, effectively simply another part of the US um, in whatever war they want to take us to whether that's China. Uh, which is, looks increasingly likely, or uh, perhaps even it will be against uh, Russia in Europe. Um, the problem with AUKUS is the Australians don't get a choice, and it's not uh, we don't get to vote in their elections, and we don't uh, have any say. If they start a war, if they do something which we don't agree with, we no longer have that choice to say, no thanks, well, we're going to sit this one out. Um, and we are throwing away what I believe is uh, a very powerful trump card. The US can't go to war unilaterally, that is, on their own. Uh, they couldn't even do it in Iraq. They couldn't, they can't do it anywhere. Uh, and so they need allies. They don't need very many allies, uh, but they need, all they need is Australia uh, and the UK. In Iraq, they had a couple of smaller nations from Eastern Europe, like uh, Bulgaria and uh, uh, Hungary, I think. Um, so nations which who can be bought, frankly. And Australia, by not being completely neutral, but by, by being uh, friendly, to the US, but not completely committed in some sort of a marriage, we have more power because we can say, no, maybe not this time, or maybe yes this time if you carry out the following things. It's great to have that sort of balance of power. And if we wanted to be a real player in the world, uh, that would be the way for us to do it. At the moment, we have, we've completely given up our power uh, by saying, we will do anything the Americans will want us to do. Now, I'm going to read a letter written uh, by some Amer oh, Americans. What am I talking about? I've got the Americans in my mind. Written by 
uh, a lifetime Labor Party member. And he's written this to three uh, Labor members of Parliament, uh, Katie Gallagher, Andrew Lee and Alicia Payne, all good members of Parliament. And this is by a guy called Kevin Ryan, who spent his, no, Warren, Wayne Ryan, sorry, uh, who spent his life in the ALP and uh, is obviously a true believer. Uh, but this is what he has to say about August. I am becoming increasingly depressed at the Labor government's policies which are pushing away true believers like myself. After commencing this term, with every chance of staying in power long enough to make real change to repair the damage to Australian society made by previous coalition governments, it is looking like the most optimistic outcome at the next election is a minority Labor government. The article in the link below, this is in something called uh, Pearls and Irritations, you can see it online, points out some of the major issues. These are the tax cuts for the rich, AUKUS and foreign policy more generally, including the Ukraine and the Israel-Palestine question. AUKUS is a complete disaster, and the more we hear about it, the worse it gets. The cost is ridiculous, but the worst part of the policy is it ties Australia ever more tightly into America's futile efforts to maintain its position as the preeminent power in China's field of influence. AUKUS subs aren't meant to defend Australia. Rather, they're meant to complement America's submarines confronting China. The very possession of such powerful weapons mean they are likely to be used, and we know that from the First and Second World Wars. Arms races lead to war. Australia needs to adopt a foreign and defence policy less dependent on Malcolm, Fra Malcolm Fraser's dangerous ally. There are alternatives and two contributions to a more independent policy, a Sam Rogerson's The Echidna Strategy and a paper by retired Australian Army Major General Michael Smith, Order of Australia. Unfortunately, a reversal of Australia's potentially disastrous policies can't be achieved overnight, but I have a forlorn hope that government policies will gradually change direction. I'm extremely disappointed that Labor is undermining the hard work done by previous Labor governments, notably Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, to advance nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament. In partnership with Evans, Prime Minister Paul Keating established the Canberra Commission on the Elimination of Nuclear Weapons, which developed and advocated an ambitious but pragmatic step-by-step -step path towards nuclear weapon-free world. Okay, as a final comment, if Labor fails at the next election, particularly to a politician such as Peter Dutton, there will be little point in Labor arguing that the times were against us. Labor will have, already has, squandered its time and its opportunities. It needs leadership of guts and vision, not timidity, caution, and mortal terror of offending anybody. Regards, Wayne Ryan, life member, ACT, Labor Party. Now, he's not the only one that thinks that. And I, not a Labor Party member, but I would say um, he makes sense. And why will we give ourselves totally over to the US? The US is obviously, and they would admit this privately, 
they support their own interests. That doesn't include Australia. And we have perhaps given too much uh, in exchange for too little. Now, I've gone on too long, and we need to hear from my friend in the UK, Gemma Cooper. Uh, I don't know Gemma yet, but I'm looking forward to meeting her. Uh, Gemma, are you there to tell us what's happening in the UK? Hello. Yes, David. Uh, good morning here from the UK. I know it's afternoon where you are, but just very interesting listening there to your editorial. And I must say, you know, um, Dean is away uh, until Friday. I know he's coming back for Australia Day, but I'm really excited to be working with you. I've done a bit of digging on your background and uh, you're certainly a force to be reckoned with. And that's the great thing about TNT, you know, people all over the world standing up to the system and standing in their power. And you're certainly one of those people. So but it's Monday morning. It's early here in the UK. We've been battered by storms all weekend. It's a bit of a beleaguered picture here in the United Kingdom. But I have to say, working with you this morning, it's uh, it's put a spring in my step. And likewise, because I um, I am an unashamed Anglophile. <laughs> it's my happy place. When I was facing prison, um, uh, I still might be going to prison. And I always think of the time I spent in the UK uh, and the friends I made there, what I love about the UK, and not only the, the green trees and everything, but the... Uh, when you've got a, an English friend, is a friend for life, and they, they they're hard to get to know, perhaps, but they are such good uh, people. And so I likewise, it's it, it, I, I, it, I get some sort of a uh, pleasure talking to you and having some sort of connection uh, with the UK. It's it it, it embodies everything that I um, uh, I try to stand for. I guess real democracy standing up for uh, what's right little people and um uh and just doing uh doing the sensible thing so it's great to have you here it's funny you we, we you get it's hard to imagine storms and snow and here it's it was 30 degrees yesterday it's pretty nice now so tell us um tell us about uh what's going on uh, today or yesterday what whatever yeah it's still very early in the morning for you but give us give us a rundown well, it's funny, actually. I mean, I mean, Dean and I talk all the time about the parallels between what's happening in Australia and the UK. I mean, so many uh, Western nations are in lockstep. Well, the whole world was in lockstep uh, this time four years ago, nearly. Um, but just actually hearing you talk about, you know, Australia being co-opted into American foreign policy, exactly the same for us here in the UK. You know, we are hand in glove. There's a special relationship. Um, but immigration is the topic, I think, that binds the UK and Australia at the moment more than any other. And interestingly, this morning, in just a few hours' time, our UK Home Secretary will face pressure from fellow MPs to scrap uh, the look, the right of asylum seekers, even the ones that come over on small boats, which is the the hot topic at the moment and is likely to be a vote winner, the small boats crossings. Um, but is scrapping the right of asylum seekers to work while they're waiting for their claims to go through. Um, MPs are currently calling for an end to the scheme under which asylum seekers are allowed to work in the UK and in, in, in sectors where there's a shortage like care, uh, construction and agriculture, uh, and they can uh, they can have their claims uh, if they've been waiting for more than a year to have their claims gone through. They can then apply for jobs in those sectors. Now MPs are saying enough's enough with this because latest figures under an investigation uh, which came out the weekend show that 16,000 asylum seekers who were waiting for their claims to go through to be processed were granted the right to work under uh, less money than a British person 
would have been paid to, to have exactly the same job. They're, they're allowed to go in a, a wage that's 80%, not 100% of the UK going rate. Um, so they're saying that this is a pull factor for people to come to the UK. It clearly has gone on long enough. Enough is enough. Uh, they say that people are coming in for on that basis alone, especially on the small boats, and are clearly sending money home. Some people say it's a good thing because if asylum seekers are given work, even if it's at a lower rate than a British person, they're coming off the welfare system, they're not claiming benefits, and they're not having their housing paid for. Uh, and it contributes to the economy because they'll be paying tax. I think the problem here and why the Home Secretary will be lobbied today in just a few hours time is, is that this problem is getting worse and immigration is becoming a much more significant issue here in the UK, just like it is in Australia, just like it is in America. We're all in lockstep with this. Mass migration is causing cultural problems more than anything else. And also, <clears throat> there are no checks and balances on these asylum seekers. There was a very distressing case out at the weekend, uh, four care home workers sentenced to prison for a few months uh, after ill treatment of a poor woman in her 90s who had dementia. Uh, their relatives installed a hidden camera and saw them abusing uh, the poor lady uh, in the care home. She's since died. Now, I'm not saying that those people were asylum seekers, um, but they certainly were from non-British backgrounds. Um, they were working here in that sector. So if you've got asylum seekers having their they're waiting for their claims to be processed. Really, you still don't know who they are, but you're letting them into the job market in some sectors where they'd be looking after very vulnerable people, which is another reason I think that the Home Secretary will be facing these claims today. Now, we are in an election year now, so this is part of electioneering. But I think like Australia, immigration is a, such a big uh, topic here in the UK. It never fails to generate opinion on both sides. So we'll see where this one goes. Yeah, yeah, no, it is a big, it, it is a big topic, and obviously that is same here. It's an election winner, and you can understand all those uh, fears. One of the things um, uh, that annoys me, and we're going back to August, is that we don't study enough cause and effect. Um, it, it, maybe if we hadn't started the Iraq War and invaded Iraq and 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 bombed Syria and done a lot of other things, we wouldn't have such a flow. Uh, of immigrants, and um, uh, I believe a lot of the reason that we we did that, having looked into a lot of these things in quite detail, was simply uh, to win American domestic elections. You know, war was good for George W. Bush; he got re-elected. Obama got re-elected. Um, it uh, it looks good for Americans domestically, but the rest of the world has to pay the price. We have the, we get these displaced people. And yes, no, we're not, we don't particularly want them in our country, but we've got to acknowledge the fact that a lot of our policies um, created them in the first place. So, uh, and we've got to be, we really don't want them. Um, and, and it's right, who, who would want those kind of problems of people coming across in boats? But if we start another war uh, in the Ukraine or, or it gets worse or, or we have a big war in the Middle East, there's going to be more refugees. And so... Uh, it might be a short-term vote winner, but um, uh, war, and I believe that's a lot of the reason why they do it, but it uh, it does. We also have to be prepared to look at the knock-on effects for it, and, um, uh, which may be uh, 10 or 20 years down the track. Um, and why would, you know, people are going to leave, if we turn people's uh, countries into war zones, they're going to want to leave and they're going to want to come somewhere. So... Um, Yes, but yeah, you know, it's a difficult problem. Who would want to have to uh, 
to, to decide uh, that, and especially when elections, as we know from um, uh, we know from the whole COVID thing, um, it, 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 the fear fear is the, is the biggest factor. And um, if you if you play under that fear, you're going to probably win the election, and uh, you might have uh, only sixty percent support you and forty percent absolutely destroyed, but uh, you'll still win the election. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to you tomorrow, and I uh, I'm sorry that it's all pretty quick. <laughs> you could go back to bed. I think <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, uh, at twenty. I'm going to have to uh, have a break, and um, we. Uh, uh, it's so, so lovely to speak to Gemma and I can't wait to see you tomorrow and for the rest of the week. And uh, thank you for that thought-provoking thing. You're listening to TNT or you're watching TNT, I should say. And we are going to have a break. Um, this is TNT and I'm David McBride for Dean Macklin. TNT's Pervoy Morich. He details factually how Russia is rolling out the algorithm ghetto. Um, you know, the, the, the multipolar edition of the algorithm ghetto, a prototype of a traffic light that records traffic violations by a pedestrian at a crossing was tested in Moscow. So Russians now, they'll, they'll have a, the government will take a snapshot of their face and then run that through the databases to figure out who is who and then find them, uh, I suppose. Uh, and then, you know, he, he points out that there are a lot of developments now, Moscow 2030, it's it's uh they want to make uh moscow achieve smart city status uh and there's just you know you look at the white papers moscow and russia are all in on agenda 2030 smart cities algorithm ghetto digital ids pervoy morich on today's news talk tnt here's a bushfire fact bushfires can occur without warning so if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. Two, think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighborhood safer place. Three, it's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. It sounds really good. It's it like, sounds real, it's dude. Not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to TNT. I'm David McBride, filling in for Dean Macklin. And we've now got our first guest of the day, Matilda Borden. Borden, I should say. Now... Her bio is as follows. Matilda Borden is a forensic social worker and a former National Secretary of Whistleblowers Australia. She's a founding member of Community Linkages, Inclusion and Innovative Centre. Matilda has extensive experience specialising in complex and compounding psychosocial barriers, including child protection, homelessness, poverty, hoarding, squalor and disabilities. 
She is someone that gets down in there with the uh, the toughest the toughest situations I can imagine, um, the most intractable problems, and I like a lot of things. I guess when there there's no rosy picture, sometimes things get swept under the carpet uh, because the same as I saw in defence, people don't want politicians don't want bad news stories getting out there, so they either try and pretend it, fudge the figures, or uh, do other around the hand things to pretend things are not happening. So anyway, welcome to the show, Matilda. Tell us. Thank about you very much. Thank you for you, inviting me. Not at all. It's an absolute uh, honour to have someone like yourself on that um, that fights the good fight, and you're actually there um, in the in the thick of things. Uh, and I take my hat off to, to yourself, people like you, because it's a it's an unremitting job. It's a really hard job, but at the end of the day, it's a job with compassion for people and seeing uh, beneath the surface of what's really going on and. Uh, giving these people time, you know, like a, you're a modern-day saint. But tell us um, about, uh, tell us, and you're also in the, with the whistleblowers too, so tell us tell us about, uh, we've only got, we better cut to the chase, I guess. So tell us, tell us some, what's the big, well, what's the big thing going on at the moment? Um, well, uh, my, my experience uh, with Whistleblowers Australia was basically I had, I'm, we're talking many decades ago, you know, probably three decades ago, uh, when I was a very young green social worker and um, didn't know the, the forest for the trees, um, I became embroiled in a very, very long um, legal battle uh, with a former employer after um I was one of a small number of people in the organisation that found out that there was something like $95,000 um, per annum being siphoned out of 3% of the agency. And uh, as a result, well, directly or indirectly, as a result of that, uh, one client was um, unfortunately burned in hot bath water and died several days later. Thankfully, I was not in the agency at the time, but it was one of a range of things that contributed to the death of that client. And unfortunately, it was all swept under the carpet. Uh, the coroner found that, well, you know, disability organisations are grossly underfunded and understaffed. Well, that was not the case in this instance. Uh, money was being siphoned off to executive cars, salaries and luncheons. Uh, and while these executives were living the high life, um, the people with disabilities in these group homes were not getting the level of care that they needed. And um, Anyway, uh, you know, it's, it's a long time ago, um, but I was not able to keep quiet about these things and found myself in an awful lot of hot water, as all whistleblowers eventually do. And I know that you know that from experience. So, you know. I do, I do, but it does <laughs> it does warm my heart to hear your story. Um, and there's nothing like speaking to another whistleblower who actually, uh, in some ways, it's very heartening uh, because you know that you're not the only one out there uh, in the desert. It's like, you know, Meeting an, another camel train in the middle of the desert in the middle of the night. It's, so uh, true, it's so nice. true. It's and nice. you know, the, here's here's the real irony: is that you can win and you can still lose. You can win in court; everything is in your favour. You'll get 
absolutely jack for it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you won't even get your legal costs back. Uh, and you have that hollow victory. Uh, you, can, you can be vindicated but still lose your career. Do you know what I mean? Had mm. I kept quiet, I would have had a very, very uh, successful and long-lived uh, career, you know, whether it would be as a policymaker or a government bureaucrat or, you know, somebody sitting advising a member of parliament. Uh, all of those things were you know, very much um, on offer to me at the time that all this unfolded. Uh, and I went from being, um, I guess, praised and celebrated to becoming a pariah. Not to five seconds, you've already gone from being yeah. the most amazing worker. And this is all documented uh, in court yeah. records now. Um, thankfully, it is, it is on the court records. But you go from being... Um, celebrated as the most extraordinary person that's walked into this agency to suddenly nobody wants to talk to you. <laughs> I know that that's, you may as well be telling my story as the same. I had, uh, I had a, a terrific reports recommended for promotion, blah, blah, blah. And then after, after I became a whistleblower, even, even when I started agitating internally, yeah. they suddenly, yeah, they put on statements. It was quite confronting for me in my court case to read statements of people saying, oh, he was a terrible worker and he wasn't very good. And um, the same people that had written uh, reports saying how great I was, they suddenly said, oh, we only wrote that because, you know, we were having a bad day or we were trying to be nice. Oh, yeah. yeah but he oh, was, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I had, uh, you know, something like 90-odd uh, pages of uh, alleged witness statements written by different co-workers, none of them sworn, mind you, yeah. um, of what a really rotten social worker I was. Um, however, when they were put on the stand, oh, you know, Mr Smith, uh, didn't you say this? No, I didn't say that about Mrs Borden. Uh, uh, you know, so-and-so, di didn't you say? No, 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 we didn't say. So they were verbaled, and, and the way that they were verbaled was... Um, the lawyers um, went to my employer and interviewed, well, the lawyers for the other side, interviewed my manager and then after gathering his uh, sworn affidavit and, you know, it was all signed, they then presented that affidavit to each and every person in the workplace and said, this is what your boss is going to say, what are you going to say? Well, what do you reckon they were going to say? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But funnily, yeah. funnily enough, none of them actually swore under oath. All of these unsworn, uh, unsworn affidavits were tendered as evidence. Uh, in fact, even, even one of my um, senior practitioners at the time, um, when she was being grilled and cross-examined, uh, you know, she was asked about my work performance and, you know, um, did, didn't you say that, you know, Matilda's um, work was unprofessional and, you know, she couldn't do this? Uh, no, I didn't say that. Oh, well, uh, where, where are all your notes from the, um, what do they call them, like um, reflective practice sessions? Now, she used to take copious notes. Oh, shredded. They were all yeah. shredded and destroyed. Yeah. All the things that would have verified and corroborated my account of what happened in the workplace. But, you know, look, I was a young social worker. I was green. I didn't know, I didn't know the forest for the trees. I mean, really, I didn't see what was coming, but it took me 30-odd years to learn what's going on, you know, it, in such corrupt systems, and and child protection is definitely one of those systems that is so broken and so corrupt. It's kind of like you know, it's it's beyond redemption. Mm. Well, I'm glad to see you're still laughing. We need to go to a break now, 
and uh, yeah, it, it's it's so happy to see you smile. That's one of my policies too: is is to always keep smiling and keep you know not let this not let give them give them the satisfaction of, of seeing me broken down. Uh, Ian, so you have inspired me, and we're going to come back after a break uh, and talk more uh, about the child protection system. You're listening or you're watching TNT on David McBride for Dean Macklin. Here's the news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Ukraine has reportedly used weapons supplied by NATO to bomb civilians at a busy market in Russia's Donetsk People's Republic. Donald Trump's congratulated his former rival, Ron DeSantis, after he pulled the pin on his presidential campaign. The US could soon declare war against the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen. And the death toll from Israel's brutal bombardment of Gaza has surpassed 25,000. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. Welcome back to TNT. I'm David McBride filling in for Dean Macklin, uh, trying to do a good job and uh, not take his crown. But I have uh, Matilda Borden with me who has been working uh, in childcare, amongst other things, and uh, a whistleblower and a very brave and charming woman that I am absolutely in awe of. So, Matilda, tell us about the child protection system. I I think that the the older we get, the more we see that wherever there is pain and misery or things that we need to be worried about, like defence, there is corruption. And unfortunately, it seems to attract people um, going, oh, yeah, that they're, the bleeding hearts out there will want to put money into this. Therefore, there's a way for us to, there's a way for us to make money out of it. But the, yeah, exactly right. And, and the money that they're making out of it is always empire building, right? You can have a million royal commissions and select committee inquiries, as we have in South Australia. We've had, we're, we're done to the eyeballs with royal commissions, but they're still calling for yet more royal commissions into child protection services and, you know, recognising how dysfunctional they are and, you know, children being trafficked and sexualised and uh, put into um, supported accommodation or group facilities, you know, where, where the children are under 10, for example, um, you know, siblings being separated. I mean, it's so dysfunctional, it, it beggars belief. Um, but... It's always the system working for the system. And what's always the outcome? Set your watch by this, mate, because it'll always come down to all these terrible things happen to children. Children die. Children are trafficked, et cetera, et cetera, because, quote, we are under-resourced, understaffed and underfunded. and, and, And we don't have enough training. So guess what? You can double, you can triple, you could quadruple the amount of funding, resources and training. And you know what? You'll still get as your outcome in terms of improving the quality of um, care and, and the quality of life of the children that need it the most and the families, you know. And and the other thing is also this notion of the child's best interests, it's always what the government says it is, right? It's always what the government says it is, not what the parents or the family or the community would consider to be in the child's best interests. For example, if mum and dad are homeless, help them with a house. No, it's easier to then put the child into foster care and mum and dad can figure out their own accommodation arrangements, right? Now, once upon a time, social workers, I mean, uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily know this, but, you know, um, I don't think too many social workers in the, in the sector operate in this fashion, but 
I remember historically um, when I was studying to be a social worker, reading how social work originated. And it actually was always intended to be at the coalface, right? The social workers would come into the family home and work with, for example, if dad's an alcoholic, you know, work on his sobriety and support mum in managing, you know, the kids and, you know, the housework, keeping on top of the chores, et cetera, et cetera. That was all done hands-on. But no, 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 no. The social workers of this day and age, they want their nice little office. They'll wear their court shoes and their pearls and their pencil skirts. They'll go around with a clipboard and pen and they'll evaluate each and every family from a completely different lens than I would if I walked into that family home and I put my rubber gloves on to wash some dishes with mum and show her how things are done, right? Mm -hmm. Totally different breed of social workers now. We now have social workers who are more interested in climbing the corporate ladder or the bureaucratic ladder, as it were, but they won't get their hands dirty. And mm. most of them are, are fresh out of university. They are not themselves parents, probably have never even babysat anyone else's kids, let alone, uh, you know, got kids of their own. And there they are lording it over parents, foster carers, for example, who might have fostered 50, 60, 100 children, and I do know a father, bless him, for, um, you know, like decades, he fostered over 100 kids and then ended up um, needing extra support and, and the horrible things that were done to him at the hands of the department. I mean, eventually, after a very, very long time, he got an apology, but he was the rare one. Uh, and that was only after there was a massive media scandal and there was a select committee inquiry into back then uh, family and community services. But you shouldn't have to wait years. Uh, for example, in, in that particular instance, the father was um, horribly accused of child sexual assault. Um, and it wasn't until his wife was going through some receipts. Um, she was doing all of his books. And after years of legal battle, having spent a fortune and almost destroying his family, um, his wife happened to find a receipt of the particular day and time when he was supposed to have carried out the sexual assault and it couldn't have happened. And when she was able to produce the receipt, he was eventually exonerated, but not before. It does, did some terrible, terrible damage. It destroyed his marriage. Um, it, it was a nightmare. And, you know, at the end of the day, there was never any compensation to him for what had happened. You know, there was never any remedy. There's never any accountability or transparency. And they always say things like, Oh, well, with the benefit of hindsight, that was then and this is now. You know, mm. well, never mind, we did all this to you. We don't have to remedy anything. You know, we don't have to learn from the experience. We can just perpetuate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's good to hear you and it's good to see you be able to, to say this in such an animated way. I mean, it's been, it's been tough enough for me, but I can only imagine. I often think about uh, having sexual assault charges, especially if you'd looked after 100 kids, parent, oh. can you imagine the, uh, the anger that it would bring up on you and, a, and an apology uh, wouldn't be doing it for me. I'd be, I'd be getting Absolutely. Some, I'd Absolutely. Be getting, the, only, the only reason I think in the end he was able to reconcile it was because he believes in God. Yeah, that's you know, perfect. Believe it or not. That yep. somehow he has reconciled that that part of his life and that that history. But what was done to him was heinous. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I've worked with so many families, mothers and fathers alike. You know, um, John Trenezis's case is a classic one here in South Australia. You know, his 12, 13-year-old daughter at the time being trafficked to pedophiles, all under the watchful gaze of 
child protection services, ombudsman, you name it, every man and his dog. His case is extremely well recorded and reported in uh, Hansards all through South Australian Parliament. You can just Google his name and you'll see pages and pages and pages of his story. Never received any compensation, never any acknowledgement, never any remorse, no sorry, no nothing. Shocking. And she was pregnant by the time she was 13, 14. Uh, and in, all in state care. In state care. All wow. in state care. What's and his name? So, so the list John, you... John Ternesis, T E R N E Z I S. Okay, that's close <laughs> enough. Yeah, I'm but sure look, that... I mean, you, you can uh, flick and me an email and I'll send yeah, you all the yeah. answers. I just said, because I'm sure people want to say that. And, and I'm Absolutely. thinking for his point of view, some sort of um, vindication, the more people that know uh, that injustice, the, the, the better for him. I'm oh, like, he just kept getting punished and punished and punished oh. constantly. Every time he raised his head above the parapet, he'd get shot down. That's it. But, they, you know, same as defence. They don't want bad news stories and no. they'd rather they, no. they'll shut down that bad news story rather than actually fix the problem. I know. I know. But, you know, the, um, right now we're, we're getting more and more calls for inquiries and royal commissions and stuff. And, you know, here's, here's the real joke, though, David. The, the real joke is the state government, probably to get ahead of the anticipated public scandal and media stories, the ugly media stories that are likely to come out in due course, they're trying to get ahead of the curve. So what do they do? They tap the University of South Australia and, and they invite this professor to come out and do a project or a plan on how to restructure child protection services. So what do they do? They invite DCP, Child Protection Services, to design the model, the new model that they're going to come up with, to do what? Protect families or protect the bureaucrats? What do you yeah, reckon? Yeah, I don't exactly. know. I'm just, you know. You could, be, you could, you could substitute child protection with defence. There's a Royal Commission into suicide as well, and it's it's been yeah. totally, everything is weaponised to make the government look good absolutely, or to avoid uh, the government, the bureaucrats looking bad. Well, here's, here's what they say um, for this um, particular, oh, they call it a meeting of the minds. Whose minds do you reckon? Certainly not <laughs> mums and dads, certainly <laughs> not the foster carers, certainly not the children. Oh, no, that's another one of my pet hates, all that. Oh, meeting of the minds. you got yeah. you got to laugh. But uh, here's what they say. Quote, what's different about this approach is that the Minister Hild that Minister Hildyard, Katrine Hildyard, and the expert group will be inviting the state. Okay, the state. They will be inviting the state to consider how best to redesign the state's child protection system, starting with a blank page. Mm. Right? Um, They're unaccountable now. What do you reckon is going to happen after yeah. they've revised the current system? A system a which dirt. only helps the politicians and the bureaucrats. Mate, of course. And and the thing is, even now, without this so-called new model, this blank page being redesigned, um, they remove children with no court orders. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This is not a lie. This is not manufactured. I have got dozens of mothers and fathers now, especially up north. There is a common thread. There is something really seriously dysfunctional with the managers and the supervisors and the senior practitioners in the northern um, suburbs of Adelaide, um, particularly Elizabeth, Manopara. You can go as far as Gawler. Um, 
And it's the same social workers. There's a common denominator there. And these people are so hostile to parents. It is so vile. Uh, One mother had her two children removed out of her care. Three, um, quote, safety plans and a care plan. The kids removed out of her care for far more than five months. Partway, um, I start questioning. Well, in fact, on the day that the children were supposed to be removed and they were intervening, I raised my concerns of, wait, wait, why are we doing this? Oh, apparently because mum protests her innocence that she's not abusing the children, she's not under the influence of drugs or alcohol, Uh, you know, she's not a threat or a risk or a danger to her children. The fact that she protests is evidence of her, quote, lack of insight, and therefore they have to intervene. So if I say, oh, you know, David, you, I suspect you've been abusing your child, and you go, well, hang on a minute, Matilda, what's the evidence of that? Well, the fact that you're even questioning me is evidence, right? It's very scary, isn't it? It is obscene. It is so obscene. And uh, fortunately, I had this particular incident recorded. And they then went and lied. The social worker went away, lied to her supervisor, made up who knows what kind of concocted story the supervisor approves the intervention then they lie to the um, ombudsman and to the minister when I raised my formal complaint and basically what they said was that I had quote heightened or escalated the conflict in this discussion when you listen to the recording David you can hear that all I'm doing and, and my voice is no more elevated than what it is now although I'm, I'm a loud speaker at the best of times <laughs> But um, all you can hear in the background is me saying, hang on, wait, 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 something's terribly wrong here. Why are we doing this? And and she turns her back to me like this. She literally turns her back to me as if I didn't even exist and starts targeting the mother. And when I'm trying to interject to defend the mother and say, hang on a minute, the child is not at, quote, imminent risk. And that was the only circumstance under which she really would have had some some authority to intervene immediately is that if the child was in imminent risk, the mother was not angry. I mean, she was distressed and and she wouldn't shy away from that. There's no question she was distressed, but try not be distressed when someone is saying, I'm going to remove your children today, right? And... um, no drugs or alcohol. She was not under the influence of any medications. She didn't threaten anyone physically or verbally. She, in fact, she's such a such a docile, non-violent person. The fact that she could even be facing these allegations is so outrageous. Um, you know, the house was in sufficient order that it, that kind of that level of intervention was not needed. I mean, you know, her house wasn't cockroach infested. It wasn't, um, you know, squalid. You know, the children were not dishevelled, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And worse still, when I started to advocate for her is when things escalated because these social workers were going to teach me a lesson I wasn't going to forget. Well, I know all about that. And it's the same, exactly the same as what I experienced in defence. And um, But uh, you have been such a pleasure to have on, Matilda. Thank you. and I love your uh, your attitude, and 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 I love the way you smile and you tell the story. And you haven't let this terrible situation break you. Keep it up. You make me feel proud to be a part of the whistleblowers. Wow. And I um, you for saying so. I want to stand uh, shoulder to shoulder, people like you, and you're an inspiration. And uh, uh, 
sorry, it's had to be so short. We've got another guest coming up, but thank you. Um, I'm touched. Thank you thank so you much, David. Telling, God bless um, you, and I hope you through. have every success in the things that are Thank you so much, Matilda. You now. And keep it up, the good fight for the uh, the children of Australia. Bloody oath. <laughs> I'm sure you will. You don't need me to tell you that, but you've, uh, you're a great advertisement. Okay, we're going to have a quick break now, uh, and then we're going to have our second guest. And uh, you're listening to TNT or you're watching TNT, David McBride. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more, so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. Listen up! Now listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to TNT. I'm Major David McBride, military whistleblower, filling in for Dean Macklin while he's having a well-earned break. And our next guest, uh, I don't need to uh, read <laughs> any notes. He's an old friend of mine and uh, a terrific uh, person. Tony Wakeham has uh, been a huge, uh, not just a supporter of Julian Assange, he, he has, uh, he's got out there and been a hard worker putting his his uh, money where his mouth is or his feet where his uh, where beliefs are and he has been holding a, a vigil or a, a, a protest for Julian Assange every week on a Friday ever since Julian Assange uh, was put in uh, Belmarsh Prison back in 2019. I don't know how many Fridays that is. It's a lot of Fridays. He will tell us himself. I'm sure he's got a count. He's had a lot of uh, eminent speakers come along. Uh, I've been there, and um, uh, Julian's father has been there, and uh, probably uh, many, many other people. Uh, welcome uh, to the show, Tony. 
you're on the radio, you're on the uh, phone today, so I'm going to have to uh, have to look at my face. Are you there? Yes. Look, sorry, my computer skills aren't as good as they could be. Um, but an absolute honour and a privilege to be on your radio show today. Thank you, David, for inviting me. Oh no, it's fantastic. Uh, as soon as they mentioned you, it uh, I wanted to be. Um, a part of it because you, you've shamed me, you shame most of us, and you get out there every uh, every week. And uh, you, when they make the movie uh, about Julian Assange, and hopefully it's got a happy ending, uh, in the montage of the people doing stuff for him, you will be in it. You'll need to think of who's going to play you in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Brown or someone, someone heroic. <laughs> Uh, some heroic Australian actor, um, and uh, uh, out there it'll be like I like to think it's going to be like the movie, uh, the Trial of the Chicago Seven, or something like that. Uh, quite a good movie where these everyday people uh, get immortalised for um, uh, what they did, uh, going against the tide. Because I mean, there's no doubt about it. it it's uh, I've been with you on the town hall steps and you don't. A lot of people just walk by and they don't care. Some, every now and again, somebody um, comes up and gets enthusiastic. So tell us what's your take. I think we're reaching a, well, we obviously are reaching a tipping point, but I'm, I think we are reaching quite a dramatic point. Um, and I don't think it is, I certainly can't predict what's going to happen next. Um, but maybe you tell us what what. what what are you thinking or what are your thoughts on on the Julian Assange case uh, now in January uh, 2024? Look, we've, within Australia, we've won, the, we've won the battle. You know, we've got nine out of ten people are firmly behind Julian. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's, I don't know, eight or ten percent of people that still oppose him. Um, but whenever I meet one, I win them over within 10 minutes, you know. I mean, it's face-to-face, -face, it's so easy. Um, and that's why I'm on the streets. That's why I'm doing it one person at a time. Because you win one person over and you win over all their friends and family. You know, it's a, it's a pyramid effect. Um, and once people know the story and they realise it's not just about one man suffering, that it's, a, it's about all of us, you know, it's about our democracy, it's about our freedom of speech and our freedom, you know, a right to know the truth about our, what our government is doing with our money in our name. That's what it's really about. And the fact that they're attacking journalists is a very, very scary situation. Um, so, you know, I think in Australia we've won the battle. The problem is in America, whenever I meet an American on the street, they haven't even heard the name Julian Assange and they've vaguely heard of WikiLeaks, but they don't really know what it's all about. Um, but I think that situation's in the process of being changed right now with people like um, Tucker Carlson, who's um, been over to see Julian in Belmarsh and um, he's hit, hit the airwaves and he's one of the most popular um people on the news media uh, in the world, you know, formerly uh, Fox um, uh, news anchor and, and now kind of out on his own and his, and his um, audience has grown. You know, it, it's like whenever they try and censor something, you can guarantee it'll get more coverage. You know, if you write a book and they ban it, you, you rub your hands together because you know it's going to be a bestseller. Um, yeah, like Spycatcher. Um, 
which was a pretty rubbish book. You'll be old enough to remember that. And yet, because the Australian government tried to ban it, <laughs> it yeah. became a bestseller. He made a he made a fortune, and he bought himself a farm in Tasmania. I think he lived uh, lived very nicely for the rest of his life. It's um, uh, I I agree. It's a it's a good point that you make. And Tucker Carlson, I mean, he'll be in the movie too. Was that is such a, a great turnaround when uh, this this guy on Fox News and and he started to tell the truth about it, quite a few things about the donors, about how yep. much influence the um, the bigger uh, capital uh, like Vanguard and BlackRock had and um he told it like it like it is and uh and he's not someone this is one of the, the strengths I've got he's not someone from a sort of a um uh, a, a, an anarchist background he is uh he is someone that just tells the truth he's so from it he's a from an establishment oh, yeah. he, he's, he's mainstream he's right in yeah. the middle of the stream that man um, and a huge following in America. Well, I think he's one of the most watched news anchors of all time. You know, I mean, he's bigger than bigger than Ben Hur. He's really enormous. So, I think he's going to play a pivotal role in this whole. Because once America wakes up that they're trying to trash their First Amendment, Americans are going to go crazy. Which gets to Julian and what's going to happen on February the twentieth and twenty first. Um, being an election year in America, there is no way in the wide world that they will want Julian Assange on American soil during an American election year. So I personally do not believe that he will be extradited this year to America. So I think there's every chance that they'll say on February the 20th and 21st, well, they won't say it on that date, They'll say it probably two months after that date or four months after that date that, yes, they'll hear the hearing at some date in the future and then they'll wait another six or nine or 12 months to set the date. So it'll be somewhere, he'll, you know, they're just going to continue the what we call lawfare. You know, it's it's punishment by process and, and it's abuse of process, I might add it. We're now over 13 years of this abuse of process, and I think we'll end up at 13, at 14 or 15 years of abuse of process. But look, America could have had him on their soil 13 years ago if they'd really wanted to. They didn't take him to their soil. They realised that the best place to punish him was on British soil, because Britons have the, you know, they have the belief that James Bond can do no harm. Um, and they have the Official Secrets Act, which makes it criminal to release government secrets, even if they are criminal um, acts. Whereas in America, it's illegal to hide criminality behind a veil of secrecy. There's actually um, legal instruments that say that that is... Um... So, you know, if this matter ever became a fair, came before a fair court in the United States of America, it'd be chucked straight out. I mean, the abusive process is so glaringly, blatantly obvious um, that it wouldn't stand the scrutiny of the American public or their judicial system, I believe. Yeah, you've got a good good grip on it. It's good. I agree. I, I don't think that he'll be extradited uh, for the same reason. I, I think that it'll cause problems in Britain in their election yep. coming up and, and um, it will cause problems in the U.S., <laughs> I think he'd have a good chance in the Supreme Court. I know he'll get convicted uh, in the in the in the Columbia or District of Columbia, but he 
there's a pretty good chance the Supreme Court and and of course the as you said then the Americans who don't really understand it they will start to see it on their own TV screens and they and yeah. they won't want that. They won't well, well they, they, they've got the first they got the First Amendment. I mean that's their that's their greatest achievement. That's their greatest single achievement. And they're the only country in the world that's got this gold standard that that enshrines free speech. I mean, there's no way um, they want him in America. You know, they're a powerful, you know, they're the most powerful country in the world. If they wanted him dead or if they wanted him on American soil, he'd be on American soil or he'd be dead. They want him alive and they want him in a a jail in a country that... Tony, we're going to have to wind up. And thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your fantastic insight.